0: Well, it's really good to be here. I love speaking to young people. It's so nice talking about love to young people. Most times, most times I get to talk to people in their 50s and 60s and, you know. Oh, well, I am uh, at Cumberland College. Isn't he just cute? I just love that Uh guy. So, uh, I'm over at Cumberland College out in the boondocks of Lidcombe. And basically I teach and research and talk about sex. When I'm not doing Bible studies and leading Bible study groups, I talk about sex. Isn't that nice? And if, any of you, and if any of you would like to look into furthering your graduate studies in the area of sexual health, please feel free to talk to me after we finish. And that's a bit of advertisement before we start. So, I, I originally had this as the chemical conspiracy of love and desire, then I thought, yeah, maybe not conspiracy, God is too good, He wouldn't have created a conspiracy within us, so I took the conspiracy out and so we have the chemistry of love and desire. So, what is this really all about? So if we can get it working, yes. A sexologist and a Christian, what is a sexologist? A sexologist basically study sex. You know, like theologists more college over there study God, sexologists study sex. Isn't that exciting? Now, what is it? How can you be, I mean, I keep getting asked, how can you be a Christian and call yourself a sexologist? I was asked this actually by the director of what's called the Kinsey Institute. Anyone here seen the Kinsey movie? Yes? Maybe, maybe not, probably not. Where Kinsey was this a sex researcher who did all sorts of exciting, all sorts of exotic exciting research, and there's a whole institute in his name in Indiana, in America. Then I was listening there on a study list, and the director asked me, Patricia, how can you do that? How can you study sex, and be, call yourself a Christian? No, these people, sex first and Christ Christ second, Christian second. And I used this, all the time. I said, look, Professor Bancroft, you and I both study sex. I just have the advantage of knowing the Creator. And he said, well, I haven't heard it said quite like that before. But that's really the basic thing. We all study various areas, but we have the wonderful privilege of actually having a relationship with the Creator. And Therefore, in God's perfect creation, we as men and women, girls and boys, have been programmed our wiring and our plumbing and every bit of us is programmed for pleasure and passion. So that's what we are going to look at a little bit. To start off with, I have asked him if you would mind reading for us from Genesis, and uh, just a few verses, but I thought rather than me reading, pick Adam after all. So, I mean, let's get <laughs> to sing Adam.
1: Okay, if you've got a Bible, um, we're reading from Genesis uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 20 to 25. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please talk to the person next to you. They'd love to share, I'm sure. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed.
0: Thank you, I, don't know, Mr. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I just got so into that, you know, because you notice the ecstasy in that response. This is the flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Man and woman standing side by side, God's creation, naked and no shame. These are the things that were there at the beginning, at perfect creation. And we, in our sinful nature, messed it up. We messed up our whole sexual programming. And we end up with all the things in this world of which sexual sins are apart. And therefore, that, that is the framework within which today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what it is that drives us in terms of desire and self-love. I want to look at this in terms of a new sort of research paradigm over the last couple of years, and that is looking at sexual attachment and relationship in the three stages. This comes from work from Rutgers University, Professor Helen Fisher from New Jersey University, and I'll just speak bits of just Give you a flavor of this whole area. We look at this whole area of relationships in three stages. Lust. This is the kind of thing that um, happens at uh, speed dating. I mean, you've heard of speed dating. I went, well, once worked with ABC Catalyst, actually, sort of watching and commenting on speed dating, and boy, you see a lot of lust going on there. It's that I desire taste. desire, lust and appetite. Then there is attraction and note the yellow words there in uppercase. It is what takes the I am horny right now into I am pony for you. That's you big. I love you. This is a state that you know many of you may right now be in. You know, you sort of going around sort of at the chemistry lecture, you're sitting here, but your thoughts are really not on bond, chemical bonding. You're on other kinds of bonding. That's the kind of attraction. I desire sex with you. And then there is attachment, which is kind of like what, where I am after 32 years of marriage. It's like looking at the old man. It's a bit like the old familiar sock in the drawer, you know. I like that sock, and so I want to hold on to it where well, it's just sort of an attachment to the old sock or the old clipper. But that's, that's good and that's got a chemistry behind it too. So let's just go through these one by one. Firstly, there is this craving. Many of you, if not all of you, would have felt that craving for sexual desire. It's testosterone driven in some of the most primitive parts of your brain. It's what lights up and that's actually a picture of feed dating. It's it's kind of non-specific. It's like, I'm hungry, some of you probably are. It's like, I want food. I'm not very specific about the kind of food. It's like, if I can't get a mate, I'll settle for masturbation, but I've got to do something to get this this thorniness out of my system. There's individual variations, there's gender differences, but basically it's just that tea dating type And that is testosterone driven. However, are we then driven by chemistry and therefore I couldn't help it. I mean, I was horny, I needed sex so I just had to go get it. No, actually not. Other research, and this is like, you know, it's kind of things we've known before, but research is confirming things we know. And that is that we have choices. Even when we are feeling really, really driven by this I need sex, lust or holiness or whatever you call it, turned on, our brains are able to weigh up. And some work coming out of Kinsey with uh, people like Eric Jensen and Bancroft, anyone who wants to follow this up, i will have to give you references, is coming out on this dual control in the brain that there's inhibition and excitation systems, which work together for decision making. So we make decisions. We have choices as to what we do with this turned on porniness that happens. And I just put drugs and alcohol there because drugs and alcohol decrease inhibition. And when we talk of sexual excitation, then put treatment there because there's a lot of new research going on. How so can we work up sexual excitation in people who say, I don't feel turned on, which of course bit not apply to you young ones. But there are people we see in the management, treatment, and people say, I mean, I'm not turned on, or most often it's the spouse saying, she's not turned on. We already get that he's not for that Never mind. So, that's the first stage. There's that sort of crazy and driven The second one is this attraction, and that's probably where a lot of you are now. It is this love, you know, it's the science of romance. It's that looking at someone and saying, I just can't live without you. Actually you can, but you
1: know, it's like,
0: (laughs) I mean it's that thing that makes you spend hours I mean, I'm walking through the park today and I'm looking at these couples and thinking, oh, I want to take you in there and use you as an example. I mean, you know, like you can just stand for hours. I cannot imagine 32 years married that my husband and I have to be stood and just gazed into each other's eyes. What a waste of time. I can remember so many better things I should have been doing at that time. So, what is this? What is this falling in love? What is it that you sit in the lecture theater here at the EU meeting and look across the room and then suddenly this person is for you? What is this? It? It, is it your senses? Are you sort of, is it vision? Is it something about the person's well? Is it something that is driving you in an evolutionary way to find your perfect mate? Let's look a little bit at some of the kind of interesting research coming out. One for the girls. Vision. You see this guy, I mean look, I, I, I just googled sexy men and got some pictures. <laughs> I haven't got a clue who they are. You probably know, but I just I was just googling sexy men. I think the one over there must be Beckham. He looks a bit familiar. The rest I have no clue. The, the corner one I just picked because he's a rugby player and I like rugby union. So, so, what is it about some of these men, like Beckham for instance, Who what is it about it that turns on the girls? What is it that people make you fall in love with a good-looking man. What is it that lights up your brain, well, the bit that secrete dopamine anyway. Research indicates that facial symmetry and even finger symmetry is tied in with better sperm quality. And that's a little picture of the sperms in the corner. That's energizing. So when you see that good-looking guy, lady and you think, <laughs> fall in love with this guy, or you know, you're gazing into your lover's eyes and he's got this beautiful symmetrical face. You're really thinking of firm quality, And that's kind of interesting because, you know, the good Lord knows that, you know, we need to make good little babies. Better still, if they're good little Christian babies. So, you know, it all adds up. What about the gentleman, one for the boys? Again, you know those voluptuous figures you looked at, whether it was 2,000 years ago, which was uh, the drawings in Sri Lanka, which is where I originally come from, or James Bond, or, you know, I tell you the ones I got on sexy girls, I wasn't going to put on your slides. (laughs) uh, Or the cartoons in the middle. It was about voluptuous figures. What is it? Basically, if you have a voluptuous figure, it sort of means that you're likely to have a good reproductive potential. So, gentlemen, when you're falling in love with that gorgeous figure, you're really looking for a good mother to carry your babies and feed the babies when they're born. You can go on with lots of things. You know, you're looking at someone and you're listening to a voice. that lovely deep voice lady that draws you it's really about his testosterone level which means he can get good erections and produce good sperm so there is a lot of research that shows what is it that draws us to people Smells. you all heard about pheromones you heard about, I'm sure the research about how there are if you take t-shirts from guys and then give them to girls then pick the one that belongs to them boy, you know, the boy there in with. And it's not the, it's not body odor, and it's not uh, shape. it's this chemicals that are secreted. And in actual fact, research indicates that those pheromonal drawings or attractions are about the immune, immune compatibility those of you who are studying immunology and with a group like this we might have someone who's doing a master's or a phd you might want to review that but this is just research that is being tossed around why is it that you know if you uh, often a mother can recognize her baby by the smell and it's not that the baby is being using perfume or something it's just the smell of the person and there's There's research definitely done on girls who live together in dorms and then after a while they'll start cycling together in terms of menstrual cycles. And that is supposed to be pheromone driven. So interesting, when you're talking about pheromones, do not buy the ones on the web soon after the lecture. A lot of them are drawn apparently from the pheromones from wild pigs. So if you want to attract a wild pig, I mean, you know... (laughs) There are some people who would query about the wild things will run around Sydney Uni, but anyway. So, don't buy the ones on the web. And kissing, or the taste of the real, what do you call it? The French kiss, or whatever it is, the real sort of, you know, that type of kiss. And you, the tasting of saliva, it's also supposed to be something about checking out your compatibility. Very little research there, I just thought it was interesting. However, When you look at the whole picture, it's about us having a schema or a love map for the person we fall in love with. So you draw all these things. Where does it come from? Something you, when you were a child, something you learned about, something that you learned from your peers, something you learned from the Bible, everything coming together. And together we carry a love map. Whether it's good looks, a good lover, whether it's about him loving your mother, whatever it is. All these things coming together in your brain form a love map. Different in men and women, because of course we all know. <laughs> one, one for the neurochemists and the neuroanatomists and the medics here. We all know that we women have this big chocolate globe. And we are a parietal lobe with and we know the men have no parietal lobe, it's only a sex lobe they've got. And so we know about the you know, the rugby lobe instead of the occipital lobe, and you know all this. So it's basically about the gender differences. So we don't have the same love map whether they are male or female. Now, just a few minutes then on the same thing. What is it really that drives this the chemistry, that's why we were talking about chemistry. Fortunately, these chemical changes that falling in love don't last forever. I'm really glad. I couldn't have lived 32 years with that sort of crazy falling in love with. I like Song of Songs, which I understand you're going to be studying later on in the week. For love is as strong as death, it's passion strong as the grave. And it flashes of fire, the very flame of God. Isn't that how you felt when you looked at your girlfriend or boyfriend yesterday evening or last five minutes ago? No, no flashes of fire? Come on! What has happened to this generation?
1: Oh,
0: oh goodness, the romance! Who is this? I mean, you guys. So, it doesn't last forever. You can't go on with the chemistry of Paul being in love. But just long enough. Long enough to pursue a specific mate for a specific purpose, you see there was a purpose, when God made you fall in love, he really made. you know, when Adam looked at Eve and said, oh, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, he was really meant, okay, let's make that a baby, you know, it was purposeful, now, we have obviously, the social milieu Leo has over the years, we have moved that into courtship, however, that's the basic thing, it's about pursuing a mate, interesting chemical changes dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine for those of you who are chemists, medics this will ring bells dopamine increases testosterone levels goal directed the behavior becomes more one person rather than I want sex like the first stage it is exhilaration, hyperactivity think about the last time you were in love all these things imagine those emotions elation Okay, you didn't feel it. Norepinephrine, the sympathetic hormone. Energy, palpitation, you know, you're sitting in the lecture and she walks in. Don't tell me you didn't feel your heart rate go up. Anxiety, where is she today? Oh, she hasn't called me for two days. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Sleeplessness, you know. I can't sleep, I keep thinking about it. You know. The hot slab of serotonin interesting chemicals, serotonin levels go down, serotonin levels go down for those of you who may be working in psychology also in obsessive compulsive behavior, falling in love is like a little obsessive compulsive behavior, <laughs> ah finally you're beginning to uh, relate to it, you know intrusive thinking, you're sitting here, you're at an EU meeting, you're studying. Um, Ezekiel, but you cannot, Ezekiel is the last thing you're thinking about. You're thinking of Sarah, or, you know, <laughs> or Rebecca, or, you know, whoever. But the point is that it intrudes, it's obsessive. And you can almost think how then this falling in love can become obsession, and the border is so little about between the two. So, let's move on to the more, after getting you all hyped up and hot, because love, let's move into attachment. The I desire to stay with you stage. This is about you know when you really really move into a phase where there's there's increased negative assessments of the partner. You can sort of stand the fact that he or she. I'll say he because we are thinking husband poor boy, man. But anyway, the point is that. You know, you can sort of stand the fact that he's a slob or he throws his clothes on the floor. You know, you have positive feelings. So they sort of override the bad manners or the fact that he didn't wash the dishes. So that stage is what you move into. Driven by what we call the cuddle hormone. Vasopressin. Some of you might have read this research about the balls. The balls are little furry creatures and there's... Sort of, there's the two species. One of them has vasopressin, and those fellows are monogamous. They sort of stay together. Another species don't, and they just run around mating with anyone. When I said this to my minister, he said, Can we give every couple a vasopressin injection after they sign the wedding vow? And I don't think it quite works that way. <laughs> Oxytocin, you might have heard of the chemistry of bonding. Where the mothers, you know, it also goes up when you're breastfeeding, when the mother is nursing the baby. Oxytocin levels go up. Bonding between mother and child. Having sex. When you have a sex, especially if you have an orgasm, your oxytocin levels go up. You bond with the person. One of the things I think, which I have never researched, I don't know how I'm going to get through ethics. But what I'd like to know is when you have like what they call, what people call serial monogamy, you know, you have sex with different people if every time you have sex with a person, you push your in level and you bond with that one then you tear yourself away and you go with someone, are you forming little mini bonding? and are you getting really confused with your brain about forming these bonds? and sort of think of, you know, sexual intercourse, you know, one flesh, it's like Super glue, and you sort of super glue yourself to one person, then you go away, you must leave a piece of yourself with that person, and maybe that's the thing. Can you imagine getting that terrific? But anyway, never mind. We'll see. So, having talked about the three stages, I want to just briefly leave you with three questions. Is it possible to be in all of these three stages at the same time? Does it necessarily have to go through the three stages? Do so I have to say, Oh, I am so horny today. I love you so much, darling. And after the wedding, Okay, well, now we are sort of, we can throw our clothes on the floor, and, you know, not care, and still love each other, and still get to us apart. And for you people, for you young aunts, how can you make it last? So well, let's just spend a few minutes talking about it. Firstly, is it possible to be in all three stages at the same time? In love, desire and deeply attached. Is it possible to be in all three stages with a person? With the same person. I'm sure they have that it's have proof that possible. Is it possible? Can you be deeply attached? You know, married like myself for a long, long time. Although you... People looking and think, poor oh, woman married for 32 years, honestly, it's not so bad, you know, someday you get So, marry comfortably in that attachment, cuddle phase, and still have, you know, spurts of being absolutely in love and desire. Actually, it is, because you think of the chemistry. We talked about different chemical bits of your brain. And there is research again coming out of Fisher's lab and others that say this is possible. You'll be in your cutting hormone, oxytocin, vasopressin phase. And there are some times that I still look at my 60-year-old husband. And he's not here today, obviously, because he's at work. But he's used to sitting at talks when I'm talking about his love life. And,
1: <laughs>
0: and sort of looking at him and feeling, I love this man. And this will happen to you. You know, you're sort of really comfortable with your attraction, the attachment to the person. But there are times when your love is so much more intense. And that's the time that, the, that you know, the vasopressin, sorry, the serotonin and the dopamine is cursing in your brain. So, that's nothing. And then there are some times when you will think, I want sex. And we call that sexual desire, and you can't live in a constant state of sexual desire. You wouldn't sit through a two-hour chemistry lecture if you were in a constant state of desire. But you can be in all three with the same person, and thank God for that. Because otherwise, people who once they're married and in attachment would never want to have sex. Because, you know, if you're in attachment state you may never really feel desire. So. Thank God that God allowed that one person be able to move between these stages. Another question is, is it possible to be in all three stages with different people at the same time? And that is interesting too, because that too is possible. Now, that introduces very interesting questions, because if you are in a married long-term attachment relationship, Because it's different parts of your brain lighting up, you can still fall in love with a second person and get turned on by a third all at the same time. Now of course the question is, what do you do about it? It can happen, but just like we talked about in the desire phase as we move along, we have choices. You know, this is where adultery and unfaithfulness comes from, the fact that happen in terms of chemistry and brain centres. does not mean it has to happen because we are made with choice and we can choose our behavior. Second question, does it have to be in that order? Yes. Go from oh, so want sex to so in love with you to okay wedding rings, second down, babies, etc. Actually no. Because some of you who come from subcontinent or other countries where arranged marriages happen, they can happen in all sorts of different ways. You can go into an arranged marriage with someone you hardly know, and I have followed couples, so no, no empirical research here, but I have followed couples from our cultures. where you see people who have been in a proposed marriage, meet, get to know each other, are deeply attached, and then develop desire for each other and fall in love. And I used to work in Sri Lanka for six years as a sex therapist where I was the only sex therapist for something like uh, 18 million people. Very interesting. (laughs) But (laughs) the majority of couples I was seeing were the so-called love marriages. And This is a whole different interesting area if anyone would like to talk about it. Third question, how can we make it? How can we make love last? Again, I get down to choices. We have choices. We have choices about moving through serial monogamy. We have choices about saying I'm in love. I'm tired of you. Let's go. Let's move on to the other one. I'm not just talking about young ones. I'm talking about a lot of young married people we see of all ages. Not just young ones, people who are 25, 30, 35, 40 years married, who say, I'm not in love with this person anymore, I'm moving on. Hello, commitment to a relationship is a choice. We are created for commitment. We are created by God for relationship with Him and with other people. Continuing commitment is a choice. And in that choice, we have the choice to exhibit grace and forgiveness. You know there is this story about when a couple, one, uh, one partner, maybe let's just for example say the male is adulterous, he has an affair, she forgives him, she takes him back, the pain is still her. she is bearing his pain, he's fine, he's forgiven. And when I heard that first I thought, See, that sounds like Christ, you know, she bore his pain and he feels fine, so forgiveness. The grace in a relationship, to understand, to grow, is a choice. And when you fall in love, you move into a relationship, you will find that communication and understanding needs working on. It is a choice. Continuously being focused on the other person is not easy. But in a couple, each is thinking about what pleases you, rather than what pleases me. It makes for a great relationship and if you have any questions on any of this. Therefore, working on these things through intimacy in a relationship is a choice and you can work on it. So, as I said earlier, choices in sex, choices in life have consequences. As I have said, as Tim said, and as I said, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was a 17-year-old when a wonderful Sunday school teacher of mine in Sri Lanka explained to me what the gospel is all about. And so we always live by our way and God's way. And whether it be in sex or whatever it is, we are created beautifully, wonderfully. And yes, we have messed things up. But we have choices to go back to God's way. And that would be my real plea to all of you who are young, who are the future. If you are Christian, bless you, hang in there keep your commitment. If you're not, and if it's a wonderful way of life, Christians are not boring people. Hey, I'm a sexologist. Talk to me. <laughs> you know, I've been on television telling people about how they can have good sex. And, you know, we just have had sexologists and Christians have wonderful times. So, I mean, talk to me if you need to or contact me. If any of you would like to know more about the graduate program, let me know. I have some brochures here if any of you would like to see that. That's where you'd like to move your graduate. Thank you. Thank you.